So this, this scene, this line, is where I want you to actually put yourself. I want you to imagine a line, just like that. I want you to imagine that kind of the sun's come up. It's hot. Already, it's already hot. The sun's up. You can see the gates open of a large kind of compound area and the guards standing post, standing watch. Because inside this compound area are the granaries of Egypt. And you've made a habit of coming here every so often, I don't know, maybe once every couple of weeks. And you know the drill. You know you're supposed to line up at the gate. You're supposed to walk through. You're supposed to go through the checkpoint. You're supposed to get, you know, hand your bag of money over. You're supposed to get the, the check mark, and the guard will let you pass, and you've got your grain sacks, and you come in line, and your grain sacks are filled, and then you leave. This is very, very serious business. The guards are serious. The people watching are serious. Every coin has to be accounted for for every granular grain of food. It wouldn't have been likely a happy line like we just had with sweet timbits. It was a serious thing that was happening because there was a disastrous famine in the land of Egypt. And it had been going on for some time now. Because this isn't the first season that you've stood in line. And actually it's getting quite kind of serious because you're running out of money. And you're really curious as to how long this can go on and how long can you keep coming into this line and how much money will you have to pay for the grain. But, but that's not today's problem. Because you're hungry, you're starving, it's time to eat. You take the grain and you leave. And the line, who knows how long this line would have been, but this line, these grain silos were feeding the entire nation of Egypt and beyond. And this particular morning, the magistrate who's in charge of all these operations, he's out there and he's watching the line as he's supposed to do. And he's making sure everything's happening as according it's supposed to happen. And he's the, the accounting and the grain and the guards and everyone's doing their thing and the line's moving slowly as this somber thing is going on. And he looks out and he can see foreigners in the line. They clearly are not Egyptian. And by, their, by the way they cut their hair and the way they have their beards and their clothing and their kind of dusty look and their weariness, they've clearly come from a long ways away. And the magistrate is looking upon this group of people and his face goes blank. His eyes as wide as saucers. For the magistrate, as we're told, is Joseph. The people he's looking at are his brothers. And he can see from the line that his ten brothers are in the line for food. Now, we learned about a little bit of Joseph last week, and we, if you've read the story of Genesis, you can go there now. Joseph is one of the best stories uh, in Genesis, one of the best, you know, start to finish one of the best stories in the Bible uh, by all accounts. It's exciting, it's riveting, it's, it's deeply emotional, it's, it's troubling. It's a really, really great story. But Joseph, after he's sold into slavery, he goes into the house of Potiphar. As we know, Joseph is a God-fearing man. He's honest. He's hardworking. He kind of starts as a low-ranking slave, and he ends up being the official of Potiphar's house. Now, Potiphar is probably the captain of the Egyptian guard. He's a very important person. 
And, he, and he's in this kind of role overseeing Potiphar's house for a long time. And then what happens? His wife accuses him of doing something he didn't do. He was accused of wrongdoing, and for the second time in, in his life, what happens to him? He goes to prison. Did he do anything wrong? No. Was it fair? No. He's thrown into a pit. Now he's thrown into a jail. But what does he do when he's in the jail? Does he complain? No. What does he do, Dan? Um, he, helps he helps out with the jail. Who's ever been so sorrowful they've had a pity party and they just sulk? That's what I'm known for. So I know all about that. I don't know if I'd do what Joseph did. Joseph has no, no time for pity parties. He helps organize the jail, and he becomes the leader of the prison somehow. And then two people come in one day. What's what, one of these people? What, what was their job? Um, the cupbearer cup and the baker. the baker. And what did they do on the same night they had something happen to them? What, what happened? They had dreams. One dream that they have, they're drinking grapes, and one dream that they were having birds fly over their uh, over the baskets eating his baked goods. And Joseph, he did what with these dreams for these two, two guys? Told them what they meant. And when three days pass, the jail door opens and these two guys are taken out for Pharaoh's birthday. And the cupbearer is restored to his place of honor. And the baker, what happens to the baker? On the count of three, let's do it. One, two, three. Yeah, he's put to death. He was, he was gruesomely put to death. And as Joseph is trying to lay him, implore to this cupbearer, please tell Pharaoh that I'm here. I didn't do anything wrong. Tell him that I'm here. And the cupbearer, when he sees Pharaoh at his birthday, he tells, he tells the Pharaoh all about Joseph, right? No. How long does Joseph sit in prison? How long? Two years. Two years longer. If you were to pause, and, I, and you do this on your own time because it's, it's too overwhelming. If you were to pause at all the tragedy that befell Joseph, all the, the wrongful mistreatment, that the, the only thing he really did was be a little bit arrogant, a little bit cocky with his brothers. But all the wrongdoing that Joseph had encountered, he waited in jail for two years. By this point, he's probably pushing 30. That's old. He has been basically a slave under Egyptian rule for almost half of his life at this point. How must he have thought about his time growing up? Did it even cross his mind that he had family back in Canaan? It even crossed his mind that his dad was still alive. Did his brothers ever flash through his mind? Did he sit in prison angry and resentful and bitter? The dreams God had given him are dead and rotting in a prison cell. No. I can only imagine that Joseph moved on. That he knew in this, this kind of day and age, there's no police, there's no 
child protective services. There's no government looking out for him. There's no one coming for him. No one's coming to save him. His brothers hated him. They wanted him dead. They sold him off. His dad thinks he's dead. Jacob's not coming to find him. He's moved on. He's let it go. He's accepted his lot, and he's doing the best that he can with where he is. Now, in a prison cell. Well, it just so happens that Pharaoh has a dream some years later. What was Pharaoh's dream about? Healthy crops growing and then unhealthy crops eating the healthy crops. And then he had another dream. He had two dreams in one night. Seven healthy cows, seven icky green gross cows eat the other cows. Yeah, exactly. And how did Pharaoh feel when he woke up? Can we do that? Can we do that for everybody? Can you pretend you're sleeping? You, this is your best thing. So pretend you're sleeping. Okay. Okay, everybody lie down. If everyone else wants to join in, you can do this. But these kids are really good. Okay, mercy. There you go. Okay. So we're, Joseph, we're Pharaoh. We're sleeping. We're going to spring up after this really unsettling, disturbing dream. Are you ready? Watch this. Ready? This is great. One, two, three. Oh, guys, you guys did better in the week. Let's try again. Let's try again. Come on. This, you're, on you're on set here. Let's go. Lie down. Try again. You've just, you've just had these dreams, remember, that are so, in, in, like, so crazy. It's like they're real as a hand in front of your face. You're disturbed. You're scared. You don't know what it means. You're sleeping. One, two, three. That's better. That's better. Pharaoh springs out of bed. This dream is so real. He doesn't know what to do with it. He calls all of his people in front of him. No one can interpret this dream. And then finally the cupbearer has this moment. Oh boy, I made a mistake. I forgot about this guy who helped me two years ago. And he goes to the prison and, and, and Joseph comes up and he helps Pharaoh with his dream. And he, he says, this is what God says, not me. This is God's interpretation. God's telling you there's a famine coming. The famine's going to be so bad. It's going to be seven good years, but then seven bad years. So I, it's best if you, like, saved up your grain in the seven good years and then rationed it out in the seven bad years so that you can keep your kingdom running. Pharaoh says, that's a brilliant, brilliant plan. We need someone to oversee that plan. Joseph says, yeah, you probably do. Pharaoh says, you are going to do that. And so from jail second in command of all of Egypt. Joseph is now put in this place of importance, prominence, and all of his skills and abilities and passions and his brain and his kind of, uh, his, his assuredness all comes into full focus. And he goes to work. And the granaries are filled. And these seven good years pass. And then the famine hits. And the people start coming. And Joseph is like, don't worry, guys, we're prepared for this. And the, the line starts forming to these granaries. And day after day after day, week after week after week, 
the Egyptians come. But the famine is so bad as people all around these kind of neighboring countries, Philistia and Canaan and the north, north of Egypt and the east and, and parts of Africa, people are coming all over to get the grain from Egypt. And then that day hits. A couple years into this thing, Joseph looks out and he's like, his whole history, everything that he had left behind, everything that he probably almost forgot about, all came smacking him in his face all at once. Ten times over. There's Reuben. There's Simeon. There's Judah. There's Levi. There's Ishakar. There's Dan. There's Naphtali. My brothers. And I love what Genesis says. Joseph, he's, he's, he's clever. He's smart. He's got other people here. So he's speaking Egyptian and he speaks through an interpreter. And the interpreter says to the men on behalf of Joseph, where did you come from? They say, from Canaan, we've come to buy food. Joseph knew who they were, but they didn't know who he was. Then, Genesis tells us, Joseph, remembering the dreams he had dreamed of them, said, you're spies. You're coming to look for our weak spots. And as I was rereading this for this morning, I thought, I always thought Joseph was playing with his brothers. But in this moment, I wonder if he still thought, you guys are crooks. You're, you're criminals. You're here actually to take advantage of us. I don't know. Genesis doesn't really tell us. So I'll leave that to, to you to decide. But, but Joseph's actions say that he, he has this little dialogue with his brothers. And then he throws him in jail for three days. And I think in those three days, he kind of lets this story rest on him. And I doubt he comes back to his post for those three days because he's probably so moved, so, so overwhelmed with emotion. His whole life's history, in a moment, coming back to him. And he remembers the dreams where his brothers are bowing down to him in the fields. And he remembers when the sun and the moon and the stars are bowing down to him. And he probably can't quite make sense of it yet. So he brings his brothers back and he says, I'll let you leave. You can go home. But you need to bring your youngest brother back to prove to me that you're not criminals, that you're not spies. And as they're talking, the, he, still Joseph is not giving up that he, who he is. He's still speaking through an interpreter. He can hear his brothers talking. And the first crumb he can hear coming out of them. They're talking amongst themselves. Now, they say, we're paying for what we did to our brother, Joseph. We saw how terrified he was when he was, in the when he was begging us for mercy. We wouldn't listen to him. And now we're the ones in trouble. Reuben broke in, the eldest. He says, didn't I tell you don't hurt the boy? But no, you wouldn't listen. And now we're paying for his murder. Joseph had been using an interpreter, so they didn't know that Joseph was understanding every word. And then Joseph turned away from them and cried. When he was able to speak again, he took Simeon and had him tied up, making him a prisoner while they all watched. So in this, at this moment, 
the brothers that the guilt of all of the things they'd done to Joseph was just kind of resting on them. Their history had come full circle. Smacked them in the face. Oh, God. We did wrong to Joseph. Now we're paying for it. Reuben says, I told you not to do that. Now you're paying for it. We're paying for the murder. They think Joseph is dead, long dead, decades old dead. And this, this beautiful thing happens. They go home. They go to Jacob and they say, the only way we can go back to Egypt is if we take Benjamin, his now favorite son from his favorite wife, his youngest, back to Egypt. Jacob says, absolutely not. Old man, he's in his late 100s. Who's in their early 100s? Who's in their early 100s here this morning? Good. Wow, you guys, fountain of youth. Wow. He's old and gray and frail and sad, and he's weak and he's tired. He doesn't have a lot of food. So they're happy to get the food, but the, the news of going back to Egypt is terrible. The news of Simeon being kept prisoner, awful. But Jacob says, forget it. Simeon can stay there forever. I'm not losing my youngest and favorite son from my favorite wife. I'm not risking it. The brothers say, fine. Famine gets worse. Some time passes. They run out of food. They get to the desperation point and they say, the only way we can go back to Egypt to get more grains is if we take Benjamin with us. Now here's where the story gets interesting because some of the brothers actually put up their own children as hostages to Jacob. So I don't know the morality of that, but they say, you know, Father, if we don't come back with Benjamin, you can kill our own children. Do you like that deal, kids? No. You think it's a good idea? No? By the way, this is my father here. This is my, my father, Steve. You can all say, hi, Steve. Dad, if I don't come back, you can take my children. How did Jacob feel about that? This is a, ter- this is a terrible predicament. But Jacob has to relent because they'll starve to death. His whole family, all of his kids, his grandkids, the wives, his big tribe that he has, they'll all die. He has to. So Benjamin goes. And when they, they go back to see this magistrate that they don't yet know is their brother, this guy holds a feast for them in their honor. Eleven brothers, or ten. I think Simeon's out of jail by that point. They're all there. They're all eating. They're gorging. They're having a feast. They're having a meal. And when they're sent home, they're sent with their grains, their bags filled with grain, overflowing with grain. And they get to the gate, and they're leaving the city. And as is the custom, the guards reach in just to take a little look-see that everything's in right order, and they find that chalice from the magistrate's house. The brothers look at Benjamin and think, how could you steal a chalice? Benjamin looks back and says, I didn't put it there. I didn't take it. Why on earth would I ever take it? And they start squabbling, and, and this anxiety grows. They've stolen from the second in command of Egypt after he had invited them into his house. How could you let this happen? Who did it? Who's here to sabotage us? The magistrate meets them out in the street, and he says, How dare you steal from me? The brothers, they start to really break down. They say, it's not, we didn't steal. It's not us. We didn't do this. We don't know how it's got. We wouldn't have done that. 
Why on earth would we ever steal from you? Just let us into your house. This is terrible. The magistrate says, no, no, no. Well, how is it here? Why is it here? Who put it there? You stole from me. No, 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 they say. They're so overwhelmed. This is, remember, Joseph remembering everything that had happened before, his whole history, his dreams. They threw themselves down on the ground in front of him. All these boys, all these brothers, bowing down before him. How could you have done this? You know when a man in my position would have discovered this. Now it's Judah. First we heard from Reuben. Now we hear from Judah. He's not the eldest. I think he's fourth born. He becomes a spokesman for the brother and he says, what can we say? What is there to say? How can we prove our innocence? God is behind this, exposing how bad we are. We stand guilty before you and we're ready to be your slaves. We're all in this together, Judah says. The rest of us as guilty as the one with the chalice. He's, he's covering for Benjamin. I'd never do that to you, said Joseph. Only the one involved with the chalice will be my slave, Benjamin. The rest of you are free to go back to your father. Judah came forward. He said, please, master, can I say this one thing to you? Don't get angry. Don't think I'm presumptuous. You're the same as Pharaoh as I'm concerned. You master asks us, do you have a father and brother? And we answered honestly, we have a father who is old and a younger brother who was born to him in his old age. His other brother is dead. And he's the only son left from that mother. And his father loves him more than anything. And they have this conversation. And at some point, after the brothers had kind of come confessed, they've come full circle. They're ready to take the fall for Benjamin. Joseph can't hold it in any longer. And he, I imagine with a headdress on, he's standing before his brothers. He rips off his headdress and he says, brothers, it's me. Joseph, it's me. Joseph. Decades dead. Decades long. History forgotten. The guilt of this death weighing on them for all of these years. Genesis says that they stand shocked and stunned. They have nothing to say. They can't believe it. So Joseph repeats, it's me. Joseph. The one you sold as a slave. And he says, what you guys did for bad, God did for good. What you did for bad, God used to save lives. To save you. To save your father. To save Benjamin. Now when this happens, there's a, like a floodgate of tears. Joseph had been sobbing. He tried to sob in quiet. These little tiny points in the scriptures that are just paint such a beautiful picture. It says that he was sobbing alone, but all of his servants could hear him. He was like really crying. Because his entire history, his entire life had kind of culminated into this point, And I think he realized what God had been doing this whole time. 
and this beautiful arc of redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness all wrapped up in emotion that he couldn't contain. What you planned for bad, God used for good. What you intended for evil, God turned it around, reweaving kind of a sneaky story. These dreams that God gave him, finally, finally, finally coming true. And after the tears and after the crying and after all this, Joseph sends his brothers back to get his dad. And Jacob comes back. And there's this beautiful reunion of like neck crying and old people sobbing. And you can imagine it all. It's really, really wonderful. But right before, this is what's great. This is a little add-on. Right before he does, he sends his brothers off. And as he... As he left, he told them, this is Joseph telling his brothers, take it easy on the journey. Try to get along with each other. <laughs> oh. oh, it's so great. Don't, don't, don't fight on your way back to Canaan. <laughs> you know, like, who's going to point the finger? Who, I, I, that's funny to me because I have brothers, and we fight all the time. So it's like, t- you, know, you know what, Joseph's like, just... Don't fight. As you go, come back, but don't fight. Because he knows they're going to fight. So, anyway, it's it's a funny little story. But we learned this week, through all these beautiful things and all these wonderful creatures and all these different kinds of stories. And and last week we talked about, like, this idea of, like, where do dreams go when they die? And that God's dreams don't actually die. But there's something beautiful about this story that just struck me this summer that this dream that God gave Joseph, it's, it's, it, it's obvious to us now after looking at this for 3,500 years, or we can assume something about this story, but for Joseph along in that narrative, when it finally came time to reconcile with his brothers, Joseph, the dream for Joseph wasn't actually to save his family. The dream was actually to save Egypt to save millions and millions of lives. This dream went in a totally different direction than Joseph ever could have imagined. When he was, the brothers bowing down before him and the sun and the moon and the stars bowing before him in this kind of like haughtiness, he probably thought he's pretty hot stuff with his family. But actually, God had something much different planned for him. And because Joseph followed through, and because Joseph was honest, and because God was with him, and because there's this like intersection of like God's providence and free will, working itself out. Millions were saved along with his family. Of course, for his family. And our dreams, our God dreams, don't die. They may not go in the direction we think they're going to go. They may not be for the people we think they're going to be for. We don't actually know the effect of our life in terms of the people around us. And when I look at the story of Joseph, it's a really tough story. Because I've, I've personally had a lot of dreams in my life that have not come true. If you want to put up your hand and agree, you can. A lot of things not, not happened. And it's hard 
to feel like you're in jail, to feel like you're doing your best, to feel like you're doing the right thing and things not work out. But there's something beautiful about this story that God is, there's the story on the top that's happening, but there's a story that God is weaving underneath, stitching up sneakily, that comes to bear fruit in its time. And the dreams that God gives us, they don't die. And they're far more, far more surprising when they come into life. We had a really, really fun week, would you say? Yeah. Yeah, pretty fun. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray, and then we've got another great song that we're going to go through um, from, from our week. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this day. We thank you that the dream that you gave, Joseph, the dream that you gave, uh, and the promise you gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise to bless the world through, through your people, through your offspring, that you are the culmination of that dream, the culmination of that plan. Jesus, now that we can rest in the eternity and the kingdom that you've provided through that promise, that we can find blessing, that we can find restitution, we can find reconciliation and redemption, that we can be made whole, that our hearts can be made filled, that we can rest in your love because of what you've done. We thank you that your dreams don't die. We thank you that that, that your dreams aren't necessarily our dreams that you give us dreams that are good, life-giving, life-filling. And we pray that we would have the courage to walk them through, that we'd be honest, integral, that we would follow you where you lead, with courage and with love. We thank you for this beautiful week and all the people that were involved and all the kids and families that were here to participate. We pray that you would give them dreams as well. In your name.